listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. Happy Monday, Coast to Coast to Coast. How's everyone doing today? As we uh, are inching towards our summer, what a week. A uh, couple things before we start. We've got a great show today. The theme of the show is what do you believe? The theme of the show is conspiracy. The theme of the show is fact. I say that because today, the hearings into the January 6th insurrection are going on, and the testimony is riveting, but we've got a new poll from Abacus saying, like, get this, 44% of Canadians polled. That would be the equivalent of 13 million Canadians believe that, quote, Big events like wars, recession, and the outcomes of elections are controlled by small groups of people working in secret against us. Millions and millions of Canadians believe in plots, secrecy, conspiracy theories. 11 million people, or 37% of those polls, say there is a group of people in this country who are trying to replace native-born Canadians with immigrants, like replacement theory. 20% of Canadians apparently believe that the World Economic Forum is a group of global elites with a secretive strategy to impose their ideas on the world. And and we're going to dig into this much, much deeper. And it really disturbed me when I saw this poll come out from Abacus. Because on the weekend, I was off. I did not do CTV question period this weekend. Joyce did. Thanks, Joyce. And the reason I didn't was it was my mom's birthday. We had an amazing party for my mother. She turned 80, and she looks about 60. She looks beautiful and is vivacious and wonderful. And I would just say my brother and sister uh, and I co-hosted this with our families, and uh, my brother's wife, my wife, my sister's husband, they were instrumental in doing it. So I thank them. I don't. I, 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 I want to give credit where credit's due. It was in my brother's backyard and my sister-in-law's backyard. And it was incredible. Um, I just want to say to all of you who have written me so many notes, seven months after my dad passed, to see my mom so happy and embracing life and to have a happy occasion instead of a sad occasion as we, you know, the, the year of mourning continues was pretty remarkable. And it does show you, as my dad always would say, you will have challenges, but you will overcome them. That life, as my dad said, and this is what we will put on his tombstone, one of the things that he said, life is an endless source of good. You have to start with love. And we got that. And I was looking around the room, and there was my mom with some of her friends from high school. And that actually was my high school reunion this weekend as well. So after the party late, I joined up with a couple of guys from my my high school. Amazing. To see these guys. I mean, my son's graduating from high school. My, our producer, Samantha, by the way, is finally getting to go to her graduation tomorrow. She'll be off to graduate from university. Sam, congratulations. She wins the gold medal as top marks in her class. Of course, Sam, right? Genius. And like all these things are happening. Moments in life that we cherish, that we hold dear to us, that we keep in our in our pockets like stones that you can feel, you know, anniversaries, birthdays, things that you trust in your life, things that you covet, your loved ones, your family, 
Like, it was such a remarkable weekend. I saw my nephew on Friday night. He was graduating from high school. He was in his high school play at the Etobicoke School of Arts. Let me just say, I don't know if you've ever heard of the Etobicoke School of Arts. In Toronto, it's one of the great art school. And he was in a, he was one of the leads in a, in a musical called Town. He was the villain. He was incredible, Thomas. Congratulations. It was incredible. And I was blown away. But all the, all the young people there were remarkable. These are gifted kids who are about to enter this world. And I don't know what they're going to do, but they are, they're going to blow the doors off the world. I've never seen this kind of talent. I'm serious. It's a remarkable place. Places like fame. And so all these incredible moments I had this weekend, you know, seeing some of my oldest friends, guys that I've known for like 40 years, and seeing my mom, and seeing my family, and seeing friends. These rights, and I just thought, this is what life's made of, these things that you trust. And then... I saw this poll. I saw this poll from Abacus. And the Abacus poll says people just, you know, millions of people are are running around thinking that they're controlled by secret cabals and believing in conspiracy theory, that they have no agency in their lives, that their lives are controlled by this rich cabal and like the World Economic Forum and the WHO. And these are conspiracy theories, frankly, that... Politicians are weaponizing, watering, fertilizing, using for their own benefit with no facts. They're the, 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 our, and of course people believe this. Of course we're undermining the very fabric of our democracy with these lies, with this unproven conspiracy theory crap. And that undermines people's happiness. And so they... You know, you've got these personal moments that are so joyous, but you want to be able to live in a society that allows you, your your kids to graduate and pursue their passions, your friendships, your friends to be around in cities and towns that you can meet with generations to come and decades to come. And you want to live in a society where you all are free to disagree, but there's a consensus on reality. There's a consensus on Facts. We can disagree on strategies. I want lower tax. You want higher tax. I want to distribute wealth. You want to keep wealth. I want to go to war. You don't want to go to war. You don't want dogs on a leash. I want dogs on a leash. You don't think that we should have drinking in parks. I think we should have drinking. Whatever. Pick up poison. I don't care. But at least we believe in facts. I believe in parks. Do you think there's a park? Those don't exist. Those parks are controlled by... Bill Gates, science, but the vaccine has eroded this, and we are in the world now of conspiracy theories. And right now, as we're speaking, I'm watching the hearings, the Donald Trump hearings on Capitol Hill on the insurrection of January 6th. And I just want you to listen to this, because if you think these conspiracies come out of nowhere, they're coming from the highest possible leadership, whether it's don't believe in vaccine uh, efficacy because the scientists are lying. They're all pawns of big pharma or the election. Let's not trust our democracy. The January 6th committee, which is holding its second day of hearings today, heard from Liz Cheney. Of course, she's a Republican. She's the daughter of Dick Cheney, but she's not Republican enough for the Trumpites. 
And apparently, listen to what, what's going on. Everybody knew that the election was fair. Donald Trump was told by his attorney general, Bill Barr, that everything was fair. Everything was fair. The mail-in ballots, there was no cheating. This was a totally sound election. But listen to this. Apparently, he was, he was listening to a drunk Rudy Giuliani instead of his actual advisors. You will also hear testimony that President Trump rejected the advice of his campaign experts on election night and instead followed the course recommended by an apparently inebriated Rudy Giuliani to just claim he won and insist that the vote counting stop. Which he did. He knew it was a lie. They've got testimony of Bill Barr. In fact, here's Cheney literally saying that again, telling him he knew it wasn't the election was legitimate, but he just went ahead and said so. He falsely told the American people that the election was not legitimate. In his words, quote, a major fraud. Millions of Americans believed him. Bill Barr, his attorney general, who worked for him, who supported him, said, you are detached from reality. It's BS. And yet the conspiracy theory persisted and it persists to this day. Millions now don't believe things. And if you think this is a uniquely American problem, we're going to take a break and you're going to hear how deeply embedded that is here. Distrust of government, distrust of science, distrust of media, distrust of lawyers, distrust of everybody. And once you start distrusting everyone, where are we left with? What do we have left? Wait till you hear this survey next. We'll take a break. you meet the people behind the story it's the evan solomon show on the iHeartRadio talk network as we speak the event going on rivet and i find it riveting i'll be candid is the testimony the u.s testimony right now and we always talk about what's going on in canada but i, I want to make sure we have a stable neighbor don't you and the January 1st or January 6th insurrection committee, basically the House committee um, is in their second day of hearings on the insurrection. And, and, and one of the things that has emerged is, look, uh, it's very clear factually. And, and again, I'm going to stick to the facts. Because facts matter. Donald Trump knew he was told by all his top experts, like Bill Barr, his attorney general, the top law enforcement person, the person he appointed to head up as his attorney general, okay, that the claims that the election were fraud were BS. Those are the words of Bill Barr. That Bill Barr said there is no credible evidence that there was an election dump. There was no credible evidence that the voting machines were rigged to count votes. This all was about Donald Trump knowing that As time went on and the mail-in ballots were counted, he would probably lose. Fox News had called the election for Arizona because they adhered to the facts. Fox adhered to the facts. Shocker. And then he didn't care. He went out, ignored the advice he was getting, said that it's not a legitimate election. And here's what um, 
Cheney says he then started to pervade conspiracy theories like this. Second, pay attention to what Donald Trump and his legal team said repeatedly about Dominion voting machines. Far-flung conspiracies with a deceased Venezuelan communist allegedly pulling the strings. This was, quote, complete nonsense, as Bill Barr said. This is complete nonsense. Now, if you think this is a uniquely American phenomenon, you'd be wrong. Canadians, too, will believe in complete nonsense. And this, in my view, is one of the most challenging issues facing all of us. Because in order to at least have a democratic debate to move forward, we got to agree on the facts. And it turns out people don't. David Coletto is a founding partner and the CEO of Abacus Data. And they have what I think is the most explosive poll of the year. I think this is the most of all polls come and go. This could be, you know, that one where you go to the doctor and the doctor says, you know what? We got to watch this. We got to biopsy this. This could spread. And if this spreads, you're in deep crap. So we've got an issue. You, you, we got to do a biopsy and we are in biopsy democracy moment. Hi, David. Hi, Evan. How you doing? Good. You, you, the headline here is millions believe in conspiracy theories in Canada. What did you find on your nationwide survey of 1,500 Canadians and, and, and give us the accuracy and what you found here? Yeah, so we, we surveyed, as you said, uh, 1,500 Canadians in May, near the end of May. Um, this was just what we released yesterday uh, was just the start of, of a bunch of stuff we're going to release. More coming tomorrow on what people think around COVID, which will, I think, shock you too, Evan. But we asked some specific conspiracy theories and asked whether people thought they were true or not, or were they unsure, and then whether they agreed with some statements. And as you said, I mean, when I design my colleague Bruce Anderson and I design a questionnaire we have certain expectations of what we're going to find but I think the results of this are shocking you know we find that one out of five Canadians believe that um, you know the world economic forum of elites um, are you know developing a secret strategy that they're imposing on the world one out of five think that secret societies controlled the world even 13 percent say that's definitely or probably true that Bill Gates has used microchips to track and affect people's behavior. Um, and, and another significant point, groups say, well, it could be true, and or I'm not sure. So they're not even, you know, we're getting close to 30 to 40% of Canadians not sure that these things are incorrect and false. And then we asked about one of the theories and conspiracy theories that's come up even in the conservative leadership races around uh, the great... Um, Reset. Uh, reset or and the, the great uh, replacement theory even right that that um, a white replacement theory yeah, yeah white, white replacement theory the white you know uh, politicians are, are bringing in immigrants who share their views and that's how they're trying to shape the future of society over a third of canadians agree that that's happening and and so yeah there's this there's you know as you said we often in canada feel we're exceptional to what's going on in other parts of the world particularly to the south of us and what this data clearly shows is we cannot take that for granted and that there is widespread um, belief in just complete falsehoods and conspiracies that are dividing us and they're dividing us increasingly by political lines as well. Speaking of David Coletto, CEO of uh, Abacus uh, Data, I, I want to just translate this into numbers because too often on the radio, too often on television, we talk about numbers, 44%, 37%, 20%, yeah. and people are just like, whatever. 
let's just do that in the equivalent of adults. When you say 44% of Canadians that you surveyed believe that wars, recessions, and outcomes are controlled by a small group of people working in secret against us, and our lives are controlled by plots hashed in secret places, 44% is 13 million Canadians. When you say 37% say there is a group of people in this country who are trying to replace native-born Canadians with immigrants who agree with their political views, white replacement theory, 37% is 11 million people. 20%, the World Economic Forum, a group of elites um, with secretive strategy and poser. You're talking about 20% of people. You're talking essentially about five and a half million people. Like, what does this tell you, David? Well, it says, you know, if if you don't think it's widespread, um, you're wrong. Um, those are millions of people. Like, we're not talking about a tiny, you know, fringe minority group that um, you'd be hard-pressed to find in a, you know, if you went into a mall. You know, if you walk into a mall and there's 100 people walking there with you, um, four, 40 of them probably believe many of the things that we're talking about today. And so that, that it's, it's spreading. And... We live in a world and in a society where because of the way we consume information, because of we, we released data last week and you, you mentioned it on your show that show deep distrust in, in folks like you, um, Evan, journalists and news organizations, deep distrust in government that is alienating a large number of us away from each other and away from the truth. And that's I just how can you say 11 million people believe, you know, the white replacement theory and that not be a big problem um, for us, uh, something that we need to confront, uh, understand, believe that's happening, and then come up with some ways of, of dealing with it and, and trying to get those people to see the, the real side of the world, that that's not happening. That's it's not, not happening because there's no facts on this. And I know people say, well, Evan, how do you know you're part of mainstream media? But that's a big deal. Is there any baseline on this? Is like, how does this compare to what Canadians thought 20 years ago, 40 years ago? Not on some of this stuff, because really, it's it's new. I mean, there's always been conspiracy theories. There's always been groups of people who who thought, you know, these kind of secret societies might exist. But any of the evidence that I've seen from past surveys suggests that it's it, it's nowhere, it's never been this this large, right? And it's never been this prevalent. And even more troubling, it's never been as aligned politically with different factions, right? Like when when we show in our survey that 70 to 80 percent of those that supported the People's Party of Canada believe these things, right? That's, that's a concentration and a, and a uniformity that means that there's starting to be some alignment with what you believe to be true and then who you are going to support politically. And that's where it becomes politically wow. dangerous. And well, well, we're seeing it. To democracies. We are. David Coletto from Abacus Data. Literally, we're seeing it play out in front of us as... The attack on the, the, the insurrection in the United States on January 6th is playing out based on a conspiracy theory that the election was fraudulent when they knew it wasn't. And, and so the political impact of this is so clear. It's literally happening, folks, as David Coletto and I are speaking. Now, David, I'm going to take a break on the Evan Solomon Show. I'm going to come back and at one 633 1010 or 71010, I'm going to ask what your views on this do you believe in these theories and what's fueling it and david you're welcome to stay we'll take a break
strong views, powerful opinions. The Evan Solomon Show continues on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back to the program, everybody. We're, we're talking about this just truth. Because in the midst of the uh, January 6th committee that are holding the second day of hearings right now, which are exposing the conspiracy theories there as what they are, factless BS. And I use the word BS advisedly because that's what the former attorney general appointed by Donald Trump, Bill Barr, said about all these claims that there was voting machines that were fraudulent and big dumps of votes. They were ahead and then they were behind and a big dump came in. That was all seen as BS Trump knew it. His advisors told them that there was no facts. And yet he went around spreading a conspiracy theory that the election was rigged and no one could trust it. And that led to the insurrection violence. And then we think, boy, the U.S., their democracy is in trouble. And then Abacus does this extraordinary survey of 1,500 people called Truth and Facts, What Canadians Believe, and found that 44% believe that wars and recessions are are, are the result of uh, outcomes of elections controlled by small groups of people working in secret and plots hatched in secret places. And 37% or 11 million Canadians believe there's a group of people who are trying to replace native-born Canadians with immigrants who agree with their political view. And 20% believe that the World Economic Forum is a group of elites with a secretive strategy to impose their ideas on the world. 13% believe that microchip Microsoft founder Bill Gates is using microchips to track you. And 21% say, mm, I'm not sure. So I ask you to comment on this. I, I want to get into this because you know me. Listen, I'll, I'll entertain anything. I'm a op- skeptical optimist. I'll check it. But if I can't find the facts, then there's nothing to it. And, and you know, saying things without facts, facts matter. Here's a fact. I'm going to light the stove. You want to put your hand on the burner? Fact. It's going to get burned. So conspiracy. Fact. Facts matter. But I want to know. Is, is it concerning to you about these conspiracy theories? Why is the number so high? Do you believe them? A lot of people do. One in four people, basically. One in five people, rather. one 1010 or 71010. Um, boy, the lines are lit up. Uh, Alan, what's up? Uh, yeah, you know, I, I, I tend to look at it as, uh, you know, there's a lot of people who, who do believe that the election was rigged, that... Uh, maybe the white replacement theory, but maybe not to the extreme. Um, I'm sure that uh, the Democrats in the U.S. let in uh, immigrants because immigrants tend to vote uh, liberal or Democrat. Uh, Why why do you say that? Just out of interest. But, like, can I let's deal with that. Like, people always say, oh, well, Conservatives also let in immigrants, but conservatives also let in immigrants. Immigration policy is immigration policy. You need immigrants because we have a falling birth rate, and the United States and Canada have thrived on immigration. The idea that all immigrants vote liberal is crazy. I am pro-immigration. My my parents are immigrants. I'm pro-immigration. We need hard workers. I have no issue with that. But in general, and, and this is what my understanding from U.S. polls, U.S talk shows and things like that that I do listen to read, is that the immigrants tend to vote uh, more uh, liberal or Democrat. Uh, I mean, that's the whole reason why they put together that Obama coalition and so on and so forth. So, I mean, there's got to be some basis in fact there. I mean, I won't go out 
as far as oh, it's to replace white people and things like no, that's 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 not that's somebody taking it to the extreme. But if if you know that Biden is in power and and that's why we see this influx of refugees coming over, who are they going to vote for if they're allowed to stay in the country? It, but, it just stands. I, I guess so. I, I guess so. But 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 you know any and I appreciate that. Any politician is free to go get votes anywhere. Um, you know, there there are, for example, in Florida, Republicans love the Cuban immigrants because they're fleeing a leftist communist dictatorship in Cuba. And guess what? The Cuban immigrants vote Republican because they like that. Like what you do in power is you look at your constituents and you're trying to appeal to your constituents to get power. And if look at Doug Ford here, um, he looked at the Brampton area. They said, oh, look, that area classically would vote uh, left. They voted liberal. He got them all the entire Brampton area to flip and vote conservative. Why? Because he had policies that appealed to them. So it's not like all Immigrants vote X. If you are in government and you want to look at the the customer and who the customers make policies that appeal to them. And, you know, yes, are more immigrants from certain countries voting Democrat than Republican? Yeah, because Donald Trump ran. The first thing he did is he's going to ban Muslims from coming in. So, yeah, if you're probably a Muslim immigrant, you're like, that guy's not my guy. But he was appealing to a different group. He was appealing to a different kind of thing. I I appreciate the call, though. Um, Yeah, like... I just don't understand. It's not a conspiracy to appeal to voters. It's a democracy. Dylan, you want to talk about this. What's up? Hey, Evan. Uh, you know, I, I'll, I'll start by saying I, I appreciate you actually bringing up this topic. Nobody else even wants to talk about it. I appreciate you giving people the chance to, to say that. Sure. Their you know me. I'll go anywhere. Yeah, no, that's, that's cool. You know, no, uh, absolutely. Uh, the white replacement is real. Um, we're living it right now. By the end of the century, white people are projected to be between 10 and 15 percent of Wait, the you population. Think white, sorry, just to, before you get on, what do you mean white? So you think white people, there's a, there's a conspiracy to replace white yes. people? Yes. You're, are, you, are, you a white, are you a white guy? Is that your yes. thing? Yes, I am. Yes, I am. But we are being, we are being deliberately replaced By because who? the liberals in this country, and never mind even the states, they, want, they think that they can turn the country into an apartheid state where they as this rich white minority can rule over this. Wait, I don't even understand. Wait, of, uh, wait you're saying and brown and white people? Yeah. Wait, wait, sorry. You believe that whites are being replaced and the liberals want that? Yeah. And they want to, yes. but they still want to be the white people who are overseeing and yes. minority. Yes. Oh, I see. That's they think I haven't heard that. Out on top. They think okay. Can I ask you a question? I, I, I mean, I don't. You have no facts on this deal, but let me ask you. Okay. How many? Well, it's, I'm just asking because I, I mean, you're, you're, you're theorizing intention. Do, I don't. Do you, think this is, do you think this is just some strange environmental phenomenon? Evan? Well, We're let me ask you. How many people every year? How many? How many people? Countries. How many people did Stephen Harper, since it's a liberal conservative, uh, a liberal conspiracy, according to you? How many uh, immigrants did the Harper government take in? Do you remember? Do you Remember, do you know the number? How many? Uh, it was around 280,000. Stephen yeah. Harper was a liberal, too. He was a neoliberal just like Oh, the I see. So Harper's a liberal team. and yes, Trudeau's basically. a liberal. So yes. the conspiracy goes across conservatives. And, so who's not a liberal then for you, Dylan? Is everyone trying to... So Harper's trying to Nobody replace in power. white... No, oh, I see. Power. So Harper's <laughs> trying to replace white people and he Trudeau went along is? with it. He wasn't, he wasn't so much instigating. So, he just thought he could ride that wave. Now, let me just tell you something, Evan. Ultimately, this is going to backfire on, on, the, on the liberals because you can't import... We're not importing. We're immigrants. We're immigrants. So hold on just a second. Because, look, look, I'm not going to give you a platform. Look, because you are verging. I understand. Yeah, go ahead. (laughs) Okay. This works in my favor in a certain sense because uh, ultimately you can't import millions of people from culturally conservative countries and not have it come back on them. So, you know what? It actually serves my interest that they're... 
What's your interest? I don't know what your interest is. Is your interest white people? Is your interest in conservatism? What is it? Uh, Well, (laughs) look, I mean... Ultimately, ultimately, we don't want. I don't want to become a minority in my own country. Okay. Let me, okay, but, but but let me ask you. But what does a minority mean? Like, what about when the Jews were coming? White, in? Let me I don't ask want you. to be a racial white minority and have my culture sacrificed. Look, I'm sure that Somalia is a nice place. To, it might be a nice place. But, but they're all Canadians. But but I'm but not what, interested in living in some Frankenstein. Okay, I, I get it. I get it. Okay, thanks. I'm not. You can't. Don't 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 say that on my show. I appreciate that. Don't say those words about people of different color. I'll have. I'll go there and I'll debate. And if you are a white guy that you think that you're, you're going to be the minority, but don't you dare use those kind of words to describe our multicultural country. And people, and don't denigrate other cultures, and don't denigrate other countries, and don't denigrate any person of color on this program, and don't denigrate another religion on this. We're Canadians here. We're working our asses off here. We're raising our families here. And if you think, Dylan... That you're having trouble competing because there's other people. Then you know what you should do? Pull up your socks and get to work. And instead of blaming the color of someone's skin, get off your ass and start working because it's competitive out there. But it's not competitive about color. It's competitive about competence. It's competitive about competence. That's what society's made of. Democracies are made out of the conventions of competence. Now, we're going to continue this. I don't, I'll don't. i go there. I'm not going to let racists come on the show, but I'll debate anyone. You know, 1-855-633-1010 or 71010. Let's get at it. Where accountability is key. This is Evan Solomon on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Hey, everybody. The lines are lighting up. Let's keep going. Let's get at it. Uh, 1-855-633-1010 or 7110. What are we debating if you're just joining us? Look, right now, as we speak, the hearings on, on, uh, in Washington are going on on the insurrection on January 6th. The committee is investigating what's going on for the second day. And they've exposed the, the lies that led up to that, that the election was fraudulent. Everyone knew it wasn't. People around the president knew it. Bill Barr, as attorney general, knew it. He told, this is BS. There's no evidence. There's nothing there. But this jibed with a survey, a remarkable survey. I think the most shocking poll of the year. I think the most shocking poll, I think the most important poll of the year. From Abacus Data, that just showed, in case you thought, oh, those Americans, they're so different. than No. 44% or 13 million Canadians believe that recessions and wars and elections are controlled by small groups of people working in secret against us and that their lives are controlled by plots hatched in different secret places. 44%. 37% or 11 million people think there's a group of people in the country who are trying to replace native-born Canadians with immigrants who agree with their political views. 20% believe it's definitely or probably true that the World Economic Forum is a group of global elites with a secretive strategy to impose their ideas. And 13% think it's definitely or probably true that Microsoft founder Bill Gates is using microchips to track their actions and affect human behavior. And 21% say, yeah, that's probably sure. I'm not really sure, but it's possible. Like, it's not happening. 
There's no evidence of this. So I've asked you, do you is this concerning to you? And I've had people come on this show to defend white replacement theory. Just had a guy named Dylan come on. And some people say, why do you give the, look, it's a call-in show. I'm going to take any argument. I'm not going to let you be racist or homophobic or hate-filled. I'm not interested in that. I'll debate you on facts. I'm not here to push a political agenda, but I will, you're entitled to your own opinions. You're not entitled to your own facts. Facts are facts. So you got to get your facts straight. When you veer into some kind of smear, forget about it. But doesn't mean I'm not, I'm afraid, I'm not afraid to take this stuff on because we got to acknowledge it. We got to talk to people. So let's get at it because the lines are blowing up. Um, I want to get to, um, Luther, go for it. Hi, Evan. Thanks for taking the call. What's up? So, yeah. So when you have things like uh, on the Democratic side in America, superdelegates or a thousand people, go ahead. I didn't say anything, well, Luther. You're on. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. So when you have things like superdelegates who can subvert the will of the people, right, it, it looks like it can be conspiratorial. When you only have a handful of media outlets that are present in today's market, as opposed to 40 years ago when there were dozens and dozens, it can feel that way. Now, I'm not saying that the superdelegates are the conspiracy theory or that the media is the conspiracy theory. All I'm saying is that when you have small groups like that, that do hold a lot of power, it makes it easier for conspiracy theorists. Right. Can, can I just give you, let me just give out. people, okay, but Luther, let me define this. Folks, in American politics, they have the electoral college, they elect delegates. Uh, super delegates are delegates that uh, is unpledged. In other words, most delegates are pledged, like the delegates vote the way the state votes. But some super delegates don't. But they only make up 15% of all delegates. And in fact, it's going down. So Luther, well, I agree with you. The Electoral College, I think it's nuts. And super delegates um, who have a proportionally bigger system. Yeah, I agree with you. It's crazy. But the problem with that, Luther, and I appreciate the call, is that that system has been around for a long time, the superdelegate system. And the conspiracies have not. The conspiracies are going up. They're weaponized not only by social media and the lack of belief, but they're now weaponized by politicians who realize they can make political gains out of distrust. They run against the government's lies. Everyone lies. Only believe me. And that's a way to power. And it's very, in my view, very corrosive. Al, what's up? Yeah, hi. Uh, I'm going to make this quick uh... But what would you do in this situation? What is your solution to the fact that in a democracy, there are many kinds of opinions. People are free to form their opinions. They're free to exercise their rights for media. What would you do? Well, Al, you've asked the uh, $64 billion question. Um, and I know, look, the liberals are trying to do bills to enforce it. I think that's very dangerous because that could only reinforce, get a negative feedback. I would say a couple things, though. First of all, we're in the age of reason and facts. We live in a beautiful democracy. Why, why is it so crazy to adhere to facts? Number two, um, politicians should have a... They, I, I think one of the great things is we live in a culture with no shame. It used to be embarrassing to lie. 
used to be embarrassing. But people, there's a shamelessness and political leaders will tell lies that, you know, we're controlled by the WHO, that our sovereignty is going to be given up if we sign that. We know it's not true. And we've got leaders running on that right now, that the that Bill Gates is, is tracking us, that the election was fraud. Look, there are fraud. There is fraud in elections. We should check this stuff out. It's not like everything runs perfectly. We have to have robust systems of accountability and checks and balances and skepticism. But that's different than conspiracy theory. And you know what? I don't know. I don't want big government controlling media. I know people are free. My solution, and I think you've asked a great question, is I try to talk about it on this show. I have a platform. And so I take calls. Somebody wants to come on. I got a guy coming on trying to defend white replacement theory. I'm not going to put it in, let the mushrooms grow and let them sit out there with millions of others and say mainstream media doesn't talk to us. I'm happy to have these debates, and, and I'm not here to put people down. I'm here to actually have a respectful debate. Go for it, Al. Well, why do you think these kinds of theories have developed now and there's this entire movement towards this? I think people look at media and there's some internal innate reaction to what they're hearing, what they've been told over years and what's being told in the media and in other academia and other things these days it's something they can't believe they can't accept yeah al thanks for the call you're you're not wrong uh like i've said this on this thanks for me you know i appreciate your time media's got to figure this out we can't pretend it doesn't exist we can't close our eyes and say you can't see me we're great no you're right people are there's there's an anger and there's a disappointment and there's a sense that a lot of the promises made are not working And there's a sense of alienation. And when you've got inflation and when you've got high gas prices and when you've got uh, COVID restrictions and government infringing on civil liberties, there's a pushback and it matters. And Al, I think we've got to deal with it. And I mean this sincerely. And anybody that's out there on talk radio or on television say, I have this, it's hard to have a solution. We got to figure it out. But one solution I do know in a democracy is let's talk. Let's not go to our perspective, little walled off gardens and talk to only the people that agree with us. I'm going to talk to people who agree with me and you talk to people. Let's, the, the beauty of our system versus China or Russia is we can talk and disagree and criticize our leaders without fear. Can we keep that? And anyway, I got to take a break. An amazing story coming up. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. We have followed this story for a long time, protecting athletes. As you know, athletes commit their lives to the pursuit of excellence and I don't care whether you're an amateur or a professional, the, the relationship to a coach, and I say this as someone who had the honor of coaching my kids. My wife was a coach. I loved it. It was and has been some of the best friendships and the best moments. And when I played sports, and I love sports, and I recommend anybody join a team, it's just you learn a lot. 
but the potential for abuse is so overwhelming. And we have followed the story of gymnastics and the class action lawsuit against gymnastics, uh, Canada, and others as athletes felt that they were being abused and have made very, very, very difficult allegations. Well, now, over the weekend, the Minister of Sport, Pascal Saint-Ange, announced new measures to hold sports organizations accountable and protecting athletes from mistreatment and abuse. You made the announcement yesterday. Here's what she said. We shouldn't be afraid of what athletes have to say because every time that something comes out, it's an opportunity to make changes and to be better. So what are they? Well, as of uh, April 2023, Sports Canada will be changing the contribution agreements with sports organizations that meet new Sport Canada funding framework eligibility requirements. So that means more checks and balances, right? If you're getting money, you've got to meet certain standards and have accountability. And there's a committee to advise the minister on how to, how to do this. But is it enough? Amelia Klein is a former gymnast who left the sport in the mid-2000s because of an allegedly abusive coach. She is named a plaintiff in the class action lawsuit against Gymnastics Canada and provincial governing bodies. And we've spoken to Amelia before. Amelia, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me. What do you make of the government's response to this and, and what the sport minister said? Well, it's, it's a start. Um, certainly, it's encouraging to hear those words from the sport minister. However, I think what I've been hearing from athletes in the wake of the announcement is that it's, it's not enough, and it's also not really responsive to the calls from now over 1,000 athletes to initiate third-party investigations into these sports to figure out why and how precisely this abuse has been occurring for decades. So, so, so what, is, what would you like to have seen today? Well, I think we would like to see progress made on that request for these investigations. I think, you know, uh, the announcement is looking forward, um, but we really do need to look backward. We need to acknowledge the harm that has happened. We need to support athletes who are coming forward with these stories and, and trying to make sure that they're okay in, in this disclosure period. Um, and we need to do something to make sure that athletes are safe right now. We're talking April 2023 for these changes. We know that there are children being abused in gyms across this country right now. So it really is a matter of urgency, and, and as much as these measures are encouraging, we need to figure out what we're going to do right now. Yeah, so, so what can we do right now? That, I guess that's my question. You know, the minister said, okay, this is what we're doing, and and she's going to tell you, oh, well, well look at Amelia. We've uh, taken new measures to do what we can so far to create new standards developed by Sports Canada. And we're, we'll keep going. But does that really help in terms of the investigation? Does that help in, in terms of prevention? Not really. So, um, you know, these investigations that we're asking for are really designed to get at the root cause of the abuse. Why is it happening? Why, what part of the culture is broken and how do we fix it? And unless we actually analyze that, it's difficult to see how we can implement policy um, that's actually going to be aimed at prevention and, and getting at those root causes if we don't understand them. So I think that's really what we're focusing on. Um, you know, there are measures that NSOs can implement right now that would actually revolutionize the lives of particularly gymnasts. So what, what do you mean I, NSOs, like sports organizations? 
Yeah, so sports organizations, even, I mean, Sport Canada could be probably imposing um, certain rules. So I have said, you know, at the moment, there's no reason why Gymnastics Canada or Sport Canada can't say, we're banning the practice of weighing gymnasts, period. Right? Like, that's that's something that could be implemented. You, you, because that was Very a big deal. You and I have spoken about this before. Your weight, yeah. not just you, but any gymnast weight, right? Like, it's this yeah. vicious cycle to purge, right? Exactly. Exactly. It's it's still something that's so ingrained in the culture that we know coaches are still implementing these practices where they're weighing girls and, and sometimes even boys, you know, at age seven, you know, so... Um, and you, you think that some, should be out? You should you think that is is just inherently abusive. I I would say so. I I don't think that um, coaches necessarily even have the um, the ability to be assessing someone's body mass and and analyzing whether that is directly tied to a gymnast's performance. That should be done under the care of a nutritionist, under an expert, if ever. But quite frankly, um, when gymnasts are competing at these levels, there's really, you know, very little ability for them to be out of shape. So it becomes a, a dominant um, measure. It becomes sort of an abusive controlling tactic as opposed to something that's a valid coaching technique. And, and what about the idea now that we've learned that the Canadian Olympic Committee uh, has invested $10 million into a safe sport initiative saying they want accessible systems to produce uh, better athletes. What, is that helpful? I think it, it is. I mean, of course, that's a significant investment. Um, we obviously don't know the particulars yet of what these policies are going to look like. Um, it, this is the very beginning stages, so really the, the particulars are going to be where it matters. Um, and uh, so we're, we're going to be still looking at that. I think right. that um, it's significant. These are good steps. I don't want to undermine the fact that the sport minister is moving forward, but I think the the issue is that we really haven't stopped to really analyze why these abuses are happening, how they're happening, and, and the ways in which we can actually tackle it. I'm speaking to Amelia Klein, a former gymnast. She left the sport in the mid-2000s because of an allegedly abusive coach. She's been named, she is a named plaintiff in the class action suit against Gymnastics Canada. Uh, since all this happened, Amelia, a lot of our, our listeners, and, and I've been wondering, like, how have, does this kept, are you reliving a lot of your stuff? Are your former um, colleagues reliving a lot? Have any of the coaches come forward from that time and say, you know, like in retrospect, that was way out of line? Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think we're all to certain degrees reliving our own experiences and um, I think overwhelmingly it's actually been a very validating experience. I, again, have been flooded with messages from gymnasts across the country saying, this happened to me too. I'm so glad that someone's talking about it. Um, So overall, it has been a really positive experience. I haven't necessarily heard of any coaches coming forward acknowledging certain things, but I have actually heard that there have been conversations happening in the background of, you know, coaches at nationals potentially changing up their coaching techniques and having some conversations with others about realizing that we do need to change this culture. We do need to make it safer. Well, this is a step. The worry in government is you always think, okay, they've taken a step, and now they'll think, okay, that's ticked off next, and and the box is done. The box is not uh, closed here. No. Lots more to do. Uh, Amelia Klein, always good to have you. Please please, uh, stay in touch with us. Um, This is a really important story, not just for gymnastics, 
for all sports uh, and all young people and all people who have been through these organizations. It's got to be safe. And, and still, it can be just as competitive and just as rigorous. It doesn't have to mean abuse is there. Uh, thanks, Amelia. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Look, you can be a, you can be a hard-driving coach, ruthlessly hard-driving, but not be abusive. There's a line. You can demand the best of the best without abusing them, without mistreating athletes. It doesn't have to be miserable. All right, we're going to uh, take a break. When we come back, I told you the theme of the place was disbelief. Oh, I, I didn't believe. People don't believe things. Well, now in the conservative leadership race, Jean Charest came out on question period yesterday and said, I don't believe Pierre Polyever has really signed up 311,000 members. Well, the president of the conservative party joins me next. Where you meet the people behind the story. It's the Evan Solomon Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Distrust, sadly, is the theme of our day as we get the details on the January 6th hearing in the United States. So there's a survey out in Canada that says like 44% of Canadians believe that secret cabals control our elections. That's true. Of the poll, not the cabals. They don't. But the poll is true. But people believe things. And then yesterday on CTV's question period, while I was celebrating my mom's birthday, happy birthday, mom. Joyce interviewed Jean Charest, and Jean Charest said, well, guess what? I don't believe Pierre Polyev. Pierre Polyev says he signed up 311,000 plus members. I think that's a lie. Listen to what Jean Charest said. Well, and you know, Mr. Polyev, uh, three, well, over 300,000, Mr. Brown, 150. There was 150 or 160. Plus, Joyce, there's other people who signed on. So at the rate it's going, we call it Pierre inflation. Okay. Jenny Byrne, who was on the show, who's the senior advisor for Pierre Polyev, says that Patrick Brown just straight up lies. He's a liar about his. We heard that last week. So what's true? Is the Conservative Party worried about inflated numbers? How are they counting all these numbers? There could be up to 600,000 members, which, by the way, even if it's 600, 700, or 500,000, that is like a windfall of windfalls if you're blue because they're 15 bucks a member. So this is, this is a good day. Even these are the kind of problems you want if you're a political party. And Rob Batherson is bathing in these very problems. He's the president of the conservative party of Canada. Hello, sir. Hi, Evan. How are you today? You like these problems. I know, right? Like, Oh, do you have 600,000, 700,000 or 500,000? Like, could you have dreamt of a better problem, Rob? No, it's a fantastic uh, challenge for the party to have. It shows that there's a lot of interest. People want a change in government. They want a new prime minister. And they see that our party is the only vehicle that uh, can get them there. And so a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of credit goes to all six leadership candidates and their campaign teams who've been crisscrossing the country and signing people up. And so now we're in a process where we have to uh, mm. complete 
the verification of all these uh, membership applications that have come through, uh, work to get a, a preliminary list uh, prepared and circulated to the campaigns, give them a chance to uh, provide uh, challenges or corrections, and then get that final list. And once we have the final list nailed down, Evan, then we will know precisely the accurate number of right. uh, of total members uh certainly uh, everything that we have seen in terms of the uh, transactions that have uh, come into the party office up till the january or the june 3rd cutoff uh say that the final number will be well over 600,000 so it's great news for the party okay so so i'm speaking to rob batherson president of the conservative party i know you say that the only vehicle for for uh, replacing the liberals is, is the conservatives they're the official opposition but it, this does remind me watching this leadership where everyone's calling each other liars and they're lying and they're lying. It reminds me of those car trips where we were all in the back of the station wagon on the vinyl seats and it was sticky. My brother and sister and I were fighting because everyone seems to be mad at each other. It doesn't look like the most fun vehicle right now, but I'm sure we'll get the parents will sort this out. Let's just get some facts on the table. Uh, how many members did the Conservative Party have going into the leadership race? I heard about 140,000. Yeah, I don't have that precise figure. I'm certainly uh, coming out of the uh, leadership that saw Aaron O'Toole uh, uh, be elected leader. Uh, the, the the total amount was 269, and there was a natural drop off uh, after the leadership and through the election period. But uh, but I would I would say it's it's fair to say that. When uh, when Aaron O'Toole was replaced, uh, the membership would have been uh, between 100 and 200 thousand. But I don't have the precise number in front of me. Okay, so let let's call it 150, right? So you got you got 150, right? Yep. And then Brown says he's got 150, so there's 300. Then Polyev says he's got 311, so now you got 611. And that doesn't I don't know how much Sheree won't say how many he's got. And then you've got Aitchison, Baber, and Lewis. So now, I, I don't know. You know, Andrew Shearer had less than 10,000. Maybe they each have less than 10,000, in which case, yeah, 600,000. But it could be 700,000. But everyone says the other two. Like, the, the, the Pauly Ever camp says that the Brown camp's lying. The Brown camp says, and the Sheree camp now says that the Pierre camp is not telling the truth. So when will the average conservative and, and Canadian know like when these numbers are all verified, how many actually legitimate members paid up for Brown, Sheree, and Polyev? So, Evan, in the previous two leadership elections, the party didn't disclose the transactions that would have gone through uh, individual leadership campaigns. That's never been part of our rules in the past. It hasn't been part of it. It's not part of our rules or practices for this leadership election. And I think what we're seeing is a natural debate. Uh, we've seen in previous elections where uh, campaigns uh, like to uh, show uh, momentum and uh, they'll hash it out. But at the end of the day, what matters more is less about the candidate or the, the the members who have signed up by individual campaigns and who actually gets out to uh, right, to, to vote. vote. But but what point? So so the externally the list doesn't get out, but internally the part the the, the campaigns all expect to have a list. Like they expect that the Polyever list will go to all everybody, and the Brown list will go to everyone, and the Sheree list. When do when do each part each campaign get to see the final list? When will the Sheree people know the final verified list of Pierre Polyev and vice versa? 
So what we've communicated to the leadership campaigns uh, last week by way of memo is we're working towards a preliminary list uh, by around July the 4th. Uh, we'd love to get that in uh, uh, sooner than July the 4th. And so that will be sort of the first draft, so to speak, of what the finalist looks for. Each leadership campaign will then have an opportunity to uh, to challenge uh, names that perhaps they feel uh, aren't members in good standing. Perhaps they have evidence that they've signed up uh, someone through their portal that doesn't uh, appear on the list, and so there'll be that opportunity for corrections. And then once that challenge phase is over, then we will have a final national voters list. But it won't be broken down by uh, the, these were the ones that were signed right. up by such campaign. It'll it will just be a single uh, national voters list, and everybody gets it. So 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 every campaign can mail voters. that out, right, Rob? Like if I'm a Pierre guy, I can email to the Charest list or the Brown list or the Lewis list, and vice versa. Even though I don't know who's on, I mean, I know my list. You won't. It's not broken down like that. But that pool of whatever it is, five hundred, six hundred, seven hundred thousand voters, the members rather, that pool's available to everybody, right? Every campaign is going to get the same list. And, and, and that will happen at some time after July 4th is the preliminary list. How far behind are you given these numbers? Um, not really. You look at the 2020 uh, leadership election again when we had uh, uh, a lower number of members. The membership cutoff in 2020 was May the 15th, and the party didn't announce the, the 269,000 figure until the middle of July. So that was, that was mm. a, a two-month uh, period. Uh, I expect we'll have uh, the final voters list in a shorter period of time with a larger number. Our staff has a lot of experience in terms of processing these. Uh, we have more, I would say, a greater percentage of online purchasing, which makes it easier uh, to track. So, so we we are certainly on track uh, to uh, to get uh, to get lists out to the campaigns, and then uh, and then the the real push will be on in terms right. of uh, campaigns encouraging the members to. Uh, to vote. And we have, keep in mind, over 600,000 ballot packages that have to be mailed out to that final national wow, voters yeah, list that's a lot. starting in late July. It is a lot. That's big money, but you get big money for that. Uh, uh, every candidate but Mr. Polly ever is asking for a third debate. Uh, I got about 30 seconds here. Will there be a third leadership debate? We haven't made a decision yet, but we're listening to the campaigns. We're listening to members. We're looking at our budget. We're looking at logistics, and uh, we hope to have a decision uh, in the uh, the days and weeks to come. Boy, you're going to have the money. Six hundred thousand members at fifteen bucks. <laughs> it's not going to be a budget issue, Rob. <laughs> That's true. Listen, these are good problems. Rob Batherson, uh, president of the Conservative Party of Canada. It's a hell of a race, Rob. Thank you, sir. Thanks, Evan. Have a great day. Yeah, you too. So there you go. That, listen, that's the guts of it. Everyone's blaming everyone and, and playing the hustle, but they got to get the numbers are going to come out. All right. When we come back, uh, I got a call in on reunions as we hit graduation season. Hang in there. Time in your car doesn't have to be time wasted. Join the evolution of talk radio. This is the Evan Solomon Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. It is graduation season. School's about to finish and reunions are happening. And I had one of those crazy weekends where uh, I had my high school reunion. Guys I've known since grade seven. 
Guys I've known since I was 12. Great to see. It's great to see them. And, and I'll talk about that. Uh, my son's about to graduate from high school. And it's a, it's a, you can see it when he and his friends are having their moment now. And they're realizing this is the end of our, that he loved high school. My son, thank God loved it. And he's got really close friends, but they're realizing their bubbles about to burst. My mom had her 80th birthday and she was celebrating with friends from high school, friends in high school. We used to call her Didi. And one eight five five six three three ten ten or seven ten ten. How do you connect? Our our producer Samantha is about to graduate formally, and she missed her grad because of COVID. So she's going to go back for her actual physical grad. She's our award winner, Sam. Way to go! Got got you got to shout out. By the way, so I had all that. You know, you had the the reunions and everything's happening. One eight five five six three three ten ten or seven ten ten. Some people hate them. I talked to a friend of mine, and one, one friend of mine said, you know, I, I'm going to go, but I, I don't connect anymore. It's just not the way it was. I actually, and I've said this to the guys, I never really got into the reunion thing. Um, I kind of went a different way, as we all did. I, and this was like blood brother kind of relationships. I love this, the, the group of guys I, I, I kind of went to high school with. And... But, you know, during COVID, we started having Zoom. One of my buddies, Jamie Lougheed, who, who went on to become a teacher and just one of, the, one of the great guys you'll ever meet in your life. Logger, shout out to you. Um, he's really our organizer. And he organizes with a bunch of guys, Gavin, Brian, a bunch of the guys who really stick together and has kind of kept us together. And he started these Zoom calls. And, and I used to say to my wife, I've had more meaningful moments on these Zoom calls than I ever would have imagined. I really got to me in a way I never thought. Maybe it was COVID. Maybe it was watching my own kids getting older. And I just, I suddenly those old um, relationships have meant more to me than, than at any other time. Maybe because a lot of my buddies and I are losing our, our parents. Or our kids are growing up. Or I don't know what it is, but it's meaningful as hell to me right now. People who know you when you're 12 and you got miles on the road. And even if you didn't, even if you separated along the way, you come back. We had some teachers there, Mr. Davies, Mr. Mills, Mr. Roberts. Like these are people who, Mr. Mackey, like people who we knew and respected. And then think they went from teachers to friends. Like our high school was great for that. And, and you got to wonder, so what's your, t- how do you connect? Some people hate these reunions. It's like, I'm a different person. And I will say this, sometimes when you get back together, you go back to the old dynamics, like the, 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 the social dynamics that you dreaded kind of reemerge 25, 35 years later. It's weird. And I don't know. Some people hate that. They're like, I am no longer that person. I don't want to be that person. Do you want to go back to your reunion? How do you connect? Do you keep your old friends from high school? Have you moved on? Oliver, what's up? Are you there, Oliver? I don't know. Maybe Ollie's not there. one 855 Oliver, are you there? Yeah, can you hear me? Yeah, I got you now. What's up? Oh, good. Uh, I just wanted to say, Evan, it's, um, you know, like, I, I personally like reunions. It's always kind of nice to see the people uh, that you were friends with in high school. We don't always keep in touch. But I wanted to say real quick, my brother-in-law had a celebration of life for his wife yesterday, and at least two dozen of the people that attended uh, were old friends from high school, and, and we're talking about for 45 years, and good friends that have stayed in touch like 
on an ongoing basis. So I just wanted to bring that up, and that's mm. about it. Hey, uh, just before you leave, Oliver, first of all, that how would just tell us, be, well, you're here, like, let's not gloss over it. A celebration of life for someone is a pretty powerful moment. And 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 when you see an old friend, I was talking to my old buddy, John Hunter, he's a, a Toronto guy, and I saw him at the reunion. And when his father died six years ago, I came to his dad's funeral. And when my dad passed uh, seven months ago, he showed up, as did many of my friends, Brian Barry, like a lot of the... And I can't tell you, we were both saying, you don't know how much that's going to mean until you're there. And you see someone at your, you know, when you're celebrating someone's loss or mourning someone's loss. And my God, it means a lot, doesn't it, Oliver? Oh, it does. It does. And these, these people, these people, we, went, we all went to the same high school. I was a couple of years younger than that, or well, maybe three or four years younger. But I got into it through uh, marriage, and my, si- my wife was uh, uh, the one that passed away, that her sister. And we just know each other, and we, and we all hang out uh, on an ongoing basis. Yeah, we have new friends, but we've maintained the old friends. And it's, we, we still, my wife and I, who, again, are younger, we still hang out with some of the old high school gang. You know, we meet nice. up for drinks at a bar, and, and it's just a lot of fun. And it's, it's not about reminiscing. It's about enjoying who we are now. Yeah, isn't that nice? Hey, thanks for the call. And, and, and heart goes out to you, my friend. Oliver there. Um, yeah, you're right. And you want to make new memories too, by the way. You can't live in the past, right? Like you can't pick at the bones of the past forever. You gotta, you gotta go on and do new things. Um, Evan, I left high school, in my rear view mirror, no desire for a reunion. I think the only people that want to go are only interested, mainly curious how good or bad people's lives ended up said James. Yeah, maybe. Or Evan, I was severely bullied in high school since I was gay. That was 40 years ago. I have no desire to attend any reunion. And let me just say something. That is so real for so many people. We were saying that there's a lot of people, as we were celebrating how much we loved it, we recognized how many people never have showed up because they might have hated it. And we were trying to figure that out and and, and how bad that was and how sad that was. Um, reunions are nice if you're more successful than everyone else, says Mike. Yeah, Mike, I get that vibe sometimes and and and... That may be true, but I always like the friends that I have, and I, and I hope this is true for you, is, is you, you, you wanna, you, you're not trying to compare yourself. You're just trying to connect. You're not trying to compare. You're not trying to compete. You're trying to connect. And, and I think maybe there's a time in life where competition matters, but isn't there a time where connection trumps competition and that kind of crap? I hope so. But I bet, Mike, you're not wrong. Uh, Rich in Mississauga, what's up? Yeah, Evan, if you've ever been a pallbearer for a millionaire, you realize that uh, certain successes uh, are what they are, and then there's your health and your relationships. So I'm, I'm fortunate enough to have two friends since nursery school, which is almost 60 years. And I have a lot of friends from high school. But where I really have a kick at the high school reunion is, is talking to the old vice principal and thanking him for all of those meetings across his desk when I had to negotiate for detentions and try uh, to make right. up stories and how it helped me later in life as an executive. Yeah, I love that. Well, you made it to an executive after all the detentions, Rich, so something went right. <laughs> yeah, it didn't turn out too bad. Didn't turn out bad. Hey, congrats. Uh, thanks, Rich. You know, it's funny. Uh, I was talking to my buddy, Mike, who, who flew up from Austin, Texas. We were talking about our kids, and we were, t- we were reminiscing about a lot of fights that we'd had, physical fights in high school. 
And he was talking about his kid and saying, you know, I said to my kid, you know, listen, you don't do it, but if you're ever in a jam, here's what you got to do. And I was saying the same. And his kid and my kid said, Dad, like, people don't fight anymore. Like, we just don't do that, which is good. I have come from a poor family. The rich kids had a field day with us. That sucks. I hate hearing that stuff. I hate that kind of class crap. We got to cut that. High school was a challenge. Not interested uh, in revisiting it, says Rob. Uh, it's funny because then you get the kids now who do the, who, you know, it's like prom season, right? Grad season, party season, prom season. And the stress of getting invited, not getting invited. Now they have something that we never had, promposals. Like those are pretty fun or pretty nightmarish. So every time someone says, I had the best promposal, there's another person that says, I never got invited to my prom. I never got invited to my grad. And, you know, that's a wound that, that every day someone celebrates, it's a little salt. So, you know, like high school is so raw. Have you ever been that young, that vulnerable, that raw? And some people, it's a beautiful, painful, nasty time. But I am, thank God, every day I still have friends that I can uh, look and have some laughs with. And, and we're still on the on, on the upside of the ground. Uh, okay, uh, we're going to meet someone who ran the Buffalo Marathon, won the Buffalo Marathon, but he did it pushing his two-year-old in a stroller. Yeah, believe this. It's amazing. Authentic voices, real conversations. This is the Evan Solomon Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. All right, welcome back. Now, if you've ever taken on a challenge, one challenge is a marathon. I was talking about reunions. We have one guy in our class, Brian, who, you know, you think, oh, I ran a marathon. Brian says, like, I ran 75 marathons. I think he's run more. Then he ran um, ultra marathons, you know, those 200K. Now he's doing Ironmans and ultras. So it doesn't matter. If you think that running a marathon is tough, then you always meet someone who's done something else. By the way, I love that. That actually inspires me. It doesn't bug me. It's amazing. Like Brian's hardcore. But then I read about Lucas McEnany, and now he's an Ontario guy who won the Buffalo Marathon. I thought, wow, way to go. Lucas running a marathon, crazy. Winning a marathon, bonkers. But then it's like, no, I didn't just win the marathon, buddy. I ran the marathon, and then I won the Buffalo Marathon pushing my two-year-old son in a stroller. And my jaw hit the floor. So Lucas joins me now. Hi, Lucas. Hi, how's it going? Well, God, I thought it was just great to run a marathon. I thought I was doing great. But then you decide to just not only run it, but so tell me about, first of all, like when my kids were young and I'm running, it's nice to push the kids, right? So you're always yeah. running with your two-year-old? Yeah, pretty well. Um, since he was eight months old. And at first it was like, you know, for him to help, you know, during nap time and he would run and I would get, ex- or he would sleep and I would get exercise and mom would get a break. So it was, uh, it was good all around. And, and, you know, I feel like a, as a father, it's uh, kind of my duty to get my son his outdoor time and his, his exercise time as he gets older. So now, and mainly when we go for runs, it's to a playground so he can burn energy and right. 
and then run home afterwards. But he still, you know, he still likes being in the stroller and he likes talking trucks while we're while we're out for runs in the stroller. So he's so you're you're kid. pushing this guy. Is this your only one, Lucas? Is 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 yeah. your guy? Yeah. So this is your first. So you're out yeah. there running, and by the way, great for them to sleep, right? When they're young, you push them, they oh, sleep, yeah. they snooze. That's always oh, a kill. Oh, That's yeah. a great thing. But yeah. now you're like going to run a marathon. Now, are you? A, you must be a killer marathon runner, Lucas. Yeah, I've, I've been a competitive runner my whole life, really. I, you know, I was, I went to school on a running scholarship, so I did track and cross country in, in university, and uh, and then ran marathons pretty competitively after after I graduated. You have so you've won marathons yeah. before. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. What is your best? I want people to understand this. Winning marathons a bonkers achievement. So what is your yeah. best marathon time? My best marathon time is two hours and eighteen minutes. Two eighteen. So my, my one of my dearest friends, Mike McGowan, many years ago won the Detroit Marathon. Um, yeah. I think he it was like two eighteen or two nineteen. That is a ridiculous yeah. time. But you yeah. decided to run a marathon pushing your kid. That is yeah. a whole different ballgame. Why did you decide to do that, Lucas? Um, a couple of reasons. One, one, cause, um, I would looked up, I, I noticed I'm just competitive by nature. And then when I started running back again, when we started up again in 2020, um, and the pandemic started and I was running with my son pretty much every day and my fitness came back. And so I was like, okay, right, well, you know, let's see how far we can go with this. And, and then I realized like, you know, I, I started looking at world records, pushing a stroller and, uh, and I was like, oh, that's something we could do, right? So, um, so trained a bit harder and got ready for it to to do it. Um, it wasn't kind of pushing Sutton and Stroller just became second nature. So that there wasn't like any kind of worry or challenge of 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 you know being able to to hit push him with a stroller. It was kind of just like, yeah, well, like next time I do a marathon, it's going to be with him. Right. And were you not worried that he would cry or he would like you got the diaper on. So people say, what if he has to go to the John? Like, beautiful. He's two. Yeah. Sutton's yeah. in the diaper like he's ready to rock. Yeah. He's a NASA astronaut. Just slap the diaper on and go. Yeah. Well, I mean, that that was that was a concern for sure. And, and you know, I, I knew that there was a, you know, probably a good 80 to 90 percent chance that we wouldn't finish the run. And I had that kind of in my mind. Okay. There's a good chance. There is a 50 chance percent chance we weren't even going to start that morning. Um, is that right? Like, what so, if he had to? Well, like, yeah. what if he needed a bottle or something? Yeah. Well, I, I had those things prepared. So I had, I in order to do the the world record, I had to have it videotaped. So I had a camera set up. I had his bottles. I had my bottles. I had, you know, he had to have a helmet on for safety. That was a, a, a request from the race director. He had to have. Um, I had to have his snacks, I had my snacks, I had an extra diaper just in case we just, you know, had to change midway. But um, I had to make sure that he he actually went, you know, to the bathroom before we started. The race started at 6.30 in the morning, so to make sure that he actually went. And he's he's old enough to go on the party, so he went before we, before we even started. Right. So I knew if the worst case, if he did go, it was going to be a light something uh, during the run. But... Um, but I was prepared. I was prepared to stop if he want if he had a tantrum and wanted to go to a playground. I was prepared to stop if, um, yeah, he just he wasn't. But he was cool. He's playground. into it. But oh, Lucas, yeah. so 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 you're just pushing away. You're just cranking. Yeah. Now, what's it like for your competitors? Like when you're running to win a marathon, you're running against the elite athletes. They're training, and then oh, they're like. What's McEnany doing there? He's hanging with us and he's pushing a stroller. That's a bit of a mental play. You're in their head. They're like, I can't beat a guy with a stroller. 
Yeah, I don't think anybody took it personally or, or, or negatively. The, the way we saw it, like everyone, you know, was out. I was, I mean, I was leaving from the beginning of the race. So I don't, I don't remember passing a single person. <laughs> Um, it's so demoralizing, though. Like someone's <laughs> training their whole years. Like that guy's beating me from the first kilometer with a kid. Yeah, yeah. and it was advertised that we were trying for a Guinness World Record, so people had to be had to know that we were going to be around the two hour thirty mark. So, um, so I don't, I you know, I don't think it came as too much of a shock, even to you know to people who've been training really hard right. and stuff, and and not that anyone isn't training really hard for a marathon, but. But yeah, I don't think it came as too much of a. Well, it probably did because it did. Let, let no one, no but, one admits it. No one admits. It. So yeah. Imagine you say, "Hey, I ran at two thirty-four. You're like, "Oh my god, that's like a world-class time." It's like, "Yeah, but I lost to a guy pushing a two-year-old." You just, you just say, "I ran at two thirty-four and I came in second. How hard was it? Like, how much harder is it? I mean, it's clearly a lot harder pushing your kid Sutton than just running alone. Um, it's the. It becomes more challenging the more. Um, the more hills there are in the, on the course, the more turns there are, because that creates, you know, deceleration and acceleration. So, um, and it, and as you're going up a hill, your you're definitely your heart rate goes up as you're trying to, you know, push push weight uphill. But if it, the, those things are made so fast to glide, like, um, and you're not, I actually have to keep one hand on it the whole time. But, um, but the 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 glide on, um, like they just they they're all so smoothly. So if it's a flat, pretty straight course, yeah. it, it it maybe adds like ten seconds a kilometer, and like not a not a ton. Still, yeah. still, you, you, you just take your your form. So, did you get the world record? We uh, missed it by two minutes. Oh, so, so are yeah. you going to do it again? No. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, everything had to cut, ha, ha, happen perfectly. Oh happen. no. We had the perfect weather, right? Um, yeah. And, and like, but yeah, we barely we got to the start line right when the national anthem was starting, so oh we barely even God. made it to the, to the start of the race. So we were just happy to have to be able to do it. Not to mention, I don't think I can top this experience. To be honest, I mean, even if we do break the record, you, trying it again, you realize you know? you, te- you technically came in second. Sutton yeah, won. Sutton crossed yeah, the line before you. You came in did. second. Sutton won the yeah, race. Uh, Lucas McEnany, uh, Ontario <laughs> man, won the Buffalo Marathon, pushing his two-year-old Sutton. Hey, thanks, man. Congratulations, and happy Father's Day coming up, Lucas. Thanks yeah, for listening, thanks. everyone.